we're going to call ourselves better than rich, we better have some good content and some good curriculum to kind of back that up. And then I had to reverse engineer and say, well, what does a better than rich life really consist of? And so the first thing I really felt like had to be the underpinning of a better than rich life is a purpose. And so phase one is to discover your purpose. Phase two is to determine your plan. And determine your plan is really just about, okay, we just came up with this really cool purpose. How are we gonna make it a reality? Phase three is to develop your skills. What we talk about mostly in phase three is all about leadership, development. We talk about sales, influence, probably a lot of the things that your audience is interested in mastering. Things are so complex, especially with everything that's going on right now. It's super important that we kind of cultivate our own wisdom and our own capacity to make decisions that are not just based on the standard advice. And so deepen your wisdom is phase four. And it's really about how to discern when there's a crossroads, which path to take. So often our success in life hinges upon these opportunities where you can go this direction or you can go that direction. And how do you know that this is the right choice for you? And I really like to zoom in and say, let's work in focusing on developing your wisdom, not just listening to good advice. That's Andrew Biggs. And there's a lot more than just good advice in this value-rich conversation. Andrew has achieved top-level success at everything he's done, from an All-American first summer as a Cutco sales rep, to a Silver Cup branch office, to an impactful role in the corporate world, and now to running his own coaching company. In this conversation, Andrew unpacks his four-phase process for how you can achieve top performance and true fulfillment in your life through his better-than-rich system. Get ready for a fast-paced conversation that will leave you educated and motivated. This is the amazing young leader, Andrew Biggs. Welcome to Changing Lives, Selling Knives. I'm your host, Dan Cassetta. There's a generation of entrepreneurs and business leaders out there right now who are positively impacting the world using lessons and skills that they first learned from selling Cutco knives with Vector Marketing Corporation. This podcast was created to share inspiring stories from Cutco's most prominent alumni and current leaders. On this show, you'll meet successful entrepreneurs, best-selling authors, superstar business executives, and transformational leaders from many walks of life. All our guests will have two things in common. One, they're all changing lives today through their work and their influence. And two, they all started out selling Cutco knives when they were younger. The lessons of the Cutco Vector experience are numerous, are compelling, and are real-world concepts for business and life. Through hearing real-life stories and hands-on experiences, you'll gain insights that can help you in whatever it is that you do in life. Thanks for pressing play. Let's get on with today's episode. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. I have a fantastic guest for you today named Andrew Biggs. Andrew was with Cutco and Vector from 2006 to 2011. In fact, he was the number one branch manager in 2008 in the company. After leaving Vector, Andrew served in an operations role for a large team of employees in India who were responsible for six of the top 10 grossing apps in the Apple App Store. Andrew has also served as an international sales coach 
for top performers at places like Google and Salesforce and Microsoft. He has been recognized internationally, has even appeared on NBC. And now Andrew runs his own coaching business. His company is called Better Than Rich. And their stated mission is to change the world for the better by providing wisdom, mentorship, inspiration, education, and community to the next generation of leaders. So obviously that resonates very highly with me and with the theme of this podcast. You are in for a treat today as Andrew is going to have a lot of fantastic ideas to share with you. Andrew Biggs, thanks so much for making time for the podcast. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I want to first ask you about what's going on right now in your world, because we are in the midst of a uh, you know once-in-a-lifetime pandemic that none of us have ever really experienced. It's uh, brought on a lot of changes and a lot of challenges. And I, I just wanted to ask you how these current times are affecting you and, and how you're coping with uh, the challenges that are here. Sure. Yes. And it's definitely crazy times that we live in, right? And I'm sure that is at this point kind of a cliche to even say. But the truth is when this first started to hit the news and it started to come out that, that we were going to be in a pandemic, my first reaction and what I tried to instill with all of my people, people that I coach and people that I lead was even if this is not a net positive for the country, or even if this is not a net positive for the world, or even for our local communities, let's turn it into a net positive for us. How can we choose to be innovative, choose to see this as an opportunity. And at the very least, even if it's not even a monetary or a performance-based net positive, how can we turn it into a positive? So because of that, I was able to, to navigate the waters relatively uh, well. And I think most of my clients have as well, which has been really good to see. And with some of them, they're actually up in sales just because of that attitude. Obviously, others are finding more time with their families and, and finding other ways to turn it into a positive for themselves. So it's That's been overall pretty good. That's just a great mentality. What are some of the net positives you're seeing for your own self and your family? Well, first and foremost, definitely time with the family. I've done way more puzzles in the last four or five weeks than I than we had <laughs> in probably the last four or five years. And just time to slow down and reflect, taking walks, spending time in nature. And I think that so often we get caught up and we don't even realize it, but we're in a little bit of a loop. We're in a little bit of a pattern and we need a little bit of a pattern interrupt to just reconnect with who we are, why we're here and, and what we're all about. So even me who coaches on that on a regular basis, I still need those times for myself to to reconnect and real realize what's really important for me. Yeah, that's just a, a really fantastic perspective, Andrew. I, I, like you, have found a lot of those same things, a lot more time with family and and uh, a lot more time outside. I live in an area where I can, I can walk outside. I know you do too. You live in the, in the countryside. I live in the massive suburbia, but I'm on the edge of it where I can at least get up into the hills near me and get out for walks. And, and that concept of the pattern interrupt to me is really something that resonates because a lot of times, you know, what people do today is what they did yesterday and it's what they're going to do tomorrow. And you sort of get caught in this sort of same old, same old routine and having this pattern interrupt has given us a chance to really reflect on what's most important. And I think the things that are most important are rising to the surface. And those are the things that are going to carry forward here when we get back to some semblance of the way things were. And a lot of the things that weren't as important are things that are going to, that have gone by the wayside and will remain by the wayside as we move forward. Yeah, it's definitely been a time for us all, hopefully to reflect on some of the bigger questions of life. What's important to us? What do we value? Why are we here? And yeah, I really hope that every single person listening to this is taking that opportunity to reflect 
One of the other things I'll just say is a lot of innovation is being born out of this. I know you and I were connecting earlier about how your business is, is responding and finding creative solutions to what seemed to be a problem, but because you're innovating and trying new things out, actually you can incorporate those things into your normal way of operating after this. And so a lot of the top business leaders that I connect with are saying, whoa, we tried this out and it worked even better than before. And even when things are back to normal, let's at least incorporate a little flavor or a little touch of what we learned during COVID. So people who are doing that are doing it right, in my opinion. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Well, let's hear a little bit about your time with Cutco, Andrew. How'd you get started with the company? Sure. So I I started in 06. I was on my summer break from college, uh, as so many people do get started. And when I first got started, I wasn't really sure what to expect, like so many people. But once I got into the training, I just dove in with both feet. And I was one of those people who just dove in and decided, I'm going to make the most of this. My very first summer, I uh, sold about $60,000 worth of product. I was number five in the country, all American for, for college students. And so that was really cool to go on your summer break and make $25,000 on your summer break. And then to head back to college it was definitely a strange and surreal experience in a lot of ways, because I was probably going into that summer thinking I would make $2,500 and not $25,000. But it definitely changed my perspective about business, about sales. It even changed my perspective because in, in a lot of ways, it was my first introduction to personal growth. And that's what I loved about the company was its insistence on personal growth and development. So that very first summer, I was hooked and I was so excited about that opportunity. That's awesome. Who'd you start with? Like, Who were some of the leaders that you worked with back then? I would say the, the most influential leader I worked with was Mike Muriel. He was the division manager out of Chicago. And he was somebody who really took me under his wing. And uh, Mike's still a dear friend to this day. And he's somebody who just really poured a lot into me and invested a lot in me not just that sales summer, but also in the subsequent summers when I started to become a branch manager and a district manager, Mike's leadership was crucial. And in so many ways, helped me just mature as an individual, helped me mature as a man and as a leader and to see the world in a particular way and to, to start giving back to people and, and to invest in people. He really showed me how to do that. So Mike was certainly probably the most influential person that I engaged with. And of course, on the company trips, meeting people like you and meeting people across the country was, it was incredible. But I would say Mike Muriel is like my, my Cutco father. He's the person who invested the most into me. And I, I owe a lot of my success to him. That's awesome. Well, I'll make sure he hears that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, through this. What were some of the most memorable experiences you had as a Cutco rep or as a Cutco manager, you know, during those, uh, those years? Yeah, I mean, Honestly, for me, it was, it was really about pushing my limits and seeing what was, I was capable of. Becoming a branch manager and, and being the number one in the country, it was really about seeing what was possible and testing my limits. I was really drawn towards the concept of a push and saying, okay, what does a push look like if I really were to push myself to the limits? And we got really good at pushes. I don't know exactly what our numbers were during the pushes, but they were a large part of our success. And that was kind of instilled into our office culture to say, Hey, we here in our office, it's really about seeing what human potential looks like. I remember because of that, I was actually inspired to run a marathon with no training at a certain point. I just decided, <laughs> you know, I was 20 years old, so you have more energy than you know what to do with anyway. But I just said, you know what? I wonder if I can run a marathon today. And I just decided I have the day off. Let me go see if I can go run 26 miles. I got 21 <laughs> miles. And I collapsed and I tried to walk the rest. I got home and I fell asleep. 
like pretty much immediately. And I was going to go run the, the remaining five. And I, I just, I, I didn't wake up till the next morning. So uh, <laughs> 21 miles was my capacity at that point. But just that sort of ethos and that sort of idea of, hey, let's see what's possible. Let's make this a thrilling adventure and push ourselves to our limits is really what I loved about it. That's awesome to hear. Yeah, I definitely uh, would say the odd vector Cutco people would resonate with that idea of just finding the opportunities to push our limits and just to see what we could do and, and just how, how that revealed a lot of other opportunities in life that, uh, that, that have, have come since our time, you know, since people's time in Cutco. So you are the number one branch. You and I are both proud members of the Branch Silver Cup Club, by the way. So uh, kudos to you. Yeah, kudos to you for that one. And uh, I'd like to hear what you feel like were some of your success factors in that role as a leader, leading a team of people, recruiting, training, developing people. How did you do so well with that? One of the biggest things I would say for me, my number one summer, which is uh, 2008, was vision. One of the biggest questions you have to ask yourself as a leader, as a manager, as somebody who's going for something big is, what is it that I'm after? What do I want out of this summer? What do I want out of, out of my life? And so just having a, a powerful, compelling vision, we really had that vision to be number one. And it wasn't really about being number one per se, but um, it was really about testing our limits again and, and pushing ourselves to see what we're capable of. And I really saw myself as somebody who should be number one. And so we went in with the stated goal saying our vision is to be number one this summer, and we're going to do everything in our power to make that happen. And so vision is something you have to have. And if you're waking up on a daily basis, you don't have motivation, you don't have inspiration, it's most likely that you don't have a compelling vision. And oftentimes, that's all that's needed to kind of spur you into action and to, to inspire you into what you need to do next. Mm-hmm. So vision was, was a, a huge part of it. Our goal, our statement for the office whenever we went to the sales conferences was, if you ain't first, you're last. And uh, so we, we definitely wanted to be number one and, and we're committed to that. Additionally, I would say uh, confidence. You know, confidence is one of those things that people say a lot, hey, you need to be confident. But I think it really comes down to preparation and having an identity that is congruent with what you're shooting for. So if you really want to have confidence, of course, do the work to be prepared so that when you get into a scenario, you actually know what you're doing. And I was confident in my skill set. I was confident in recruiting people. I was confident in training people. I was confident running meetings and having one-on-one conversations with people. And because of that, you know, that was that was half the battle. But the other half of the battle is I had an identity that was congruent with my vision. Um, I really saw myself as somebody who was capable of being number one and really saw myself as someone who should be number one. And so if you're, again, listening to this, you're saying, okay, my goal right now is to sell 10,000 this week, or my goal this, this week is to do 100,000 as an office, or if it's longer for the summer, my goal is to hit a million dollars or something like that. You need to ask yourself, do I really believe that I'm somebody who's capable of that? Do I really think in my bones that that's, I'm built for that, that that's meant for me? And if not, you need to really ask yourself why. Uh, what are the limiting beliefs that are coming up for you when you consider hitting a goal? Is it that you don't think you're talented enough or you don't think you're organized enough or whatever it is for you? So I, it was really overcoming those limiting beliefs. Uh, and the last thing I just throw in there as far as success is culture. Uh, and just having a, a top-notch culture with high standards. And so it's just really asking yourself, what are the standards for myself? What are the standards for the office? Uh, if we're really going to be a championship organization, we need uh, to operate with, at a really high level. And that means praising people who are in alignment with those standards and, quite frankly, challenging people when they aren't in alignment with those standards. 
That was great, Andrew. I love what you said about confidence, where you said, do the work to be prepared, hmm. right? Because I think that Vector and Cutco attracts a lot of people who have done really well at things in the past. You know, they're either great students or they're star athletes or they've had other successes or in some cases, all of the above. And someone like that who's 18 or 19 years old, a lot of times gets caught in the trap of thinking, well, everything in life is going to be good for me. Like, I'm just going to crush everything. And that's true if they do the work to be prepared, right? But if they just think they're going to be able to sort of, you know, muscle their way through things based on their personality and their past success, a lot of times these people are in for a rude awakening. And so hearing this concept of doing the work to be prepared, right, that you did that, that's how you built confidence. That that really resonated for me. I thought that was a great point. And you also, you talked about the vision and being after being number one. When I was branching and when I was number one, it was my second summer as a branch manager, just as it was for you. And so I had gone through one summer, done reasonably well, and figured out like, okay, if I do this, this, and this, we could do really, really well. So I totally believed we could be number one. And in fact, from the very first interview at the very beginning of the summer, I told our team, this is our goal. We're going to be number one. Every single interview, people heard that. What I'm wondering, Andrew, is what advice you would have for those people who don't necessarily see themselves being able to be number one. When Vector's got 300 or 400 branch managers, having a goal to be number one can be inspiring and can be great, but can also be a little dicey, uh, particularly for people doing branch for the very first time. And so how does somebody establish a vision if, if it's not being number one and, and make that compelling for their people? Great question. I would say it needs to be something that you do feel confident in, but also pushes you. So you want to find something in that edge, that zone, that's not too far beyond your comfort zone, but it's certainly beyond it. And in, in psychological terms, it's known as the proximal zone of development. So it's stretching beyond what you currently are capable of. So it's going to demand your very best on a daily basis, but also it isn't so daunting that you can't wrap your head around it, that you can't wrap your arms around it, that you can't even possibly imagine how it's possible. And so you want to find something that's in that zone. So I don't care if it's number one in the company or if it's number one in the region or it's number one in the division or it's top 10 or it's top 20 or it's top, you know, or it's a certain number. We want to hit 200,000 or 300,000 or whatever the number is for you, but have something that you are promoting that is really compelling for you that you are excited about for the summer or for the year. And then, you know, start promoting that to your team. But it needs to be something on the edge of your comfort zone, but not too far beyond it. What do you think of yeah, that? Yeah. Andrew, that sounds great. I really feel like that's an important concept, the proximal zone of development, that spot where you feel confident you can do something, but it stretches you, right? It feels like it's a little outside your comfort zone, maybe a little beyond the capacity you might have thought because we're all capable of way more than we think. Mm -hmm. and, and being able to understand that and stretch for things that might be a little bit beyond your comfort zone, but that you can kind of see the path to. I think it's important to see that path. I think it's important to understand sort of the metrics involved in being able to achieve a goal. And in Vector, it's pretty easy to construct those metrics. In most places, it's where you can do that as well. You can construct the metrics from here to there. So you can see how do I get from A to Z along these steps as I go along. So I think that's a critical idea. So that was great. Yeah, thanks for that. Awesome. And to the yeah. metrics, Point. I know we got a lot to cover, but I think it's just important to, to note what gets measured gets managed. And so 
you can reverse engineer any goal if you want to. And you can just look at what do I need to put in as the daily input, whether it's number of phone calls, if you're a representative, or it's number of, of recruiting reach outs, or it's a number of appointments scheduled for your team. You know, you can reverse engineer any goal using the metrics. And if you measure them and pay attention to them on a daily basis, you'll eventually get there. So it's, it's another point worth noting. Yeah, that was great. Tell us a little bit about your path after Vector and ultimately what led you to starting your own company. Sure. So I was um, I ended up taking a position overseas in India, as you mentioned. I had 200 people on day one. And over the next five years working with that company, uh, we built that up to about 1,500 people that I was managing, full-time employees in India. And we were working in the mobile gaming space. And we took it from about $6 million to $30 million over five years. And it was really good. I was in one of the top positions in the company you know, one of the, the key decision makers. And also, I started to realize that culturally, I had a few differences with the leadership team, namely just the fact that, you know, I wanted us to have a lot more values and a, a mission statement and really pour more into our team. And it was kind of a, a classic battle of kind of the old school mentality of business versus the new school. And I, I seem to be the only person in the leadership team kind of interested in that and more of the personal development side. And so I just said, hey, it's probably best if I went my own way and, and started my own thing. So it's funny, I actually caught up with one of them just yesterday. We were talking COVID stuff. And and since the la- since I left three years ago, they've actually done a lot of those things that we were talking about. So it was funny that we were kind of connecting on that. And he was grateful for me. And also, I was grateful for them. You know, They really helped me a ton. And I learned a lot, particularly about the systems and operational aspects of how to run a business and how to scale. So I really felt confident going out on my own. And that's really where Better Than Rich came from, is, is saying, how can we not just be rich in life, but how can we be better than rich? And of course, what, what that really means is I want people to be fulfilled, be happy, have enriching lives, not just rich lives, where they have deep connections with their family and friends, they have hobbies, they have interests, you know, they're spiritually fulfilled, they're physically healthy. And also, yes, we want your bank account to be really healthy as well. So that's really where they came out of and, and decided, hey, I'm going to go headlong into the coaching world and start giving back more so to individuals and to organizations. That is really cool to hear, Andrew. I have a a group that I associate with here in Silicon Valley of various tech CEOs, venture capitalists, and their wizards, as I like to call them, who are truly some of the best of their kind in their field. And we've had some conversations about the concept of personal development and what plays in you know the corporate world and there's a segment of these guys that think that this is like uh fluffy stuff that it it has no place in the corporate world it's like they think that development in a company is all about how do i increase the person's job skills and thus how do i increase their productivity increase the corporate profit increase people's you know advancement in a company and their income but it's not about anything outside of that. It's all about the job. And of course, my take is that that is not correct. My take is that I really believe in the Jim Ronism of let's help people with their lives, not just their jobs. And that a great leader is also involved in taking some time to, number one, get to know people on a personal level, but then help them aspects of their lives. And the way that I think it's important for a leader to help people is, is through 
helping your own self and sharing what you're learning, your own personal growth, doing a lot of that, and then just sharing it and discussing it. And it's not like I feel like I have all the answers for the people I work with, but I can discuss, hey, how are you handling this? Or how are you working with this? And uh, just as an example, like I'm part of a dad's group and that John Vroman runs. And if I come home from a retreat, you know, where I learned a little bit about the dad area, being a better parent and father, I'll discuss that with some of my executive team who are mostly, you know, parents as well. And we'll talk about parenting and challenges and things that we're different things that we're encountering in our, in our day to day lives. And, and I feel like having an element of that in any company is important. And when I ran a vector office, there was always a part of every key staff meeting where we didn't talk about selling or anything related to Cutco, but we talked about life and we talked about life skills and how are we developing these different areas, our mental attitude, dealing with stress, building confidence, whatever it might be, all these different things that make a big difference in somebody's life. It's cool to hear that you had that same sort of conversation within the company you were with. And some of your colleagues took the side that some of my associates have that it's all about work. And so you went out and you decided to do your own thing where you could really focus on helping people to develop their lives. It's such a valuable part of what great leaders are doing because we all work so that we can live life. We don't live so that we can go to work every day, right? Absolutely. And I think people are attracted to that and they're drawn to that. And one of the biggest things that is underlying corporations and, and hitting those metrics and you know performing for the shareholders and all of those different things is is retention and attracting quality talent. And people want to be a part of a culture and a part of a team where they want to show up to work every day and they're excited to show up to work every single day. They don't, they don't want to be mandated to show up to work. I just got off the phone this morning with somebody from Salesforce who, who's one of their top folks, one of their top sales reps. And what Mark Benioff is doing for them during this pandemic is extraordinary. It's very similar to kind of how Vector thinks you know, about pouring into people and, and going above and beyond for folks. And he's never going to want to leave Salesforce because of that. So it's pretty amazing how they're able to retain top talent, how you guys are able to retain top talent because you pour into people. I wanted to mention one thing about what you said. I loved what you said about, it's not like you have all the answers. And I feel very similar with that too. You know, I really look at it as I'm on my own personal growth journey and I'm at a certain point and I have mentors that I learn from. And I also have people that I mentor. And we're all kind of somewhere in this growth journey, somewhere on this maturity journey, uh, both in business and in life in different aspects. And it's our job to both be learning and to have people who are kind of running with our running mates and also to have people that we're teaching. And if you're doing it, if you're doing it that way, I really feel like you're, you're doing it right. Uh, if you run into a coach or a mentor or somebody like that who claims to have all the answers and that they're a finished product, I always tell people to run in the opposite direction because... Right. That person is not going to be supporting you where you're at. And most of all, even if they know a lot, they're not going to really be able to understand what it's like to be in the throes of it. So, yeah. yeah. I, I even think as a mentor within a, uh, a company setting where you're, you're building long-term relationships with people that you're working with, that some element of vulnerability is important where you're sharing your faults and you're sharing your frustrations and you're sharing your failures and openly being willing to talk about those things with people. I think really helps others to grow and, and to, to tackle the same or similar challenges in their life better because they've discussed these things with you. So I think that's a part of, of uh, success as a leader as well. Mm -hmm. So you've got, with Better Than Rich, you've got these four pillars that you teach. You call it the four-phase process that you take people through. 
And I'd like to be able to get some time today to discuss these four things. And so maybe you can pick up by speaking about what is the first phase in your process and we'll go through the four. Cool. Yeah. So phase one in our four phase process is to discover your purpose. And so I really looked at this just again, to give a frame around this. I looked at it and said, if we're going to call ourselves better than rich, we better have some good content and some good curriculum to kind of back that up. And then I had to reverse engineer and say, well, what does a better than rich life really consist of? And so the first thing I really felt like had to be the underpinning of a better than rich life is a purpose. And so phase one is to discover your purpose. And it's all about understanding why are you here? You know, why are you on this planet? And ultimately finding meaning in your life and in your work. These days, it can be tougher and tougher to find meaning in what we're trying to do. And sometimes we feel disconnected and alienated by life. And, and, you know, I think that asking this existential question, if you will, this spiritual question at the start is really an important one so that you have something at the bottom of why you're doing what you're doing. Because unless you have a really, really good reason and you find some meaningful, deep, deep, meaningful reason to do what you're doing, you're always going to burn out. You're always going to find a roadblock that you can't overcome because you don't have a deep enough reason to overcome it. And so, yeah, finding your why and your purpose is phase one. And that's where we really get into who are you and what are your strengths? What are your values? What are you here to do? And ultimately, you know, then what we start trying to do is cohere that around an identity that really is congruent with what you're trying to accomplish in the world. So does it start with a, a assessment of one's strengths and superpowers and also, you know, their, their most important values or philosophies or things they're committed to in their life? Absolutely. So it does have a combination of kind of the scientific method of personality, taking a look at someone's personality assessments. We use a, a model called the ocean model or the, the big five trait model. I know you guys use CVI, but it's fairly similar. Right? You use some sort of a of personality assessment, and then you combine that with a, a lot of personal deep inquiry. You and I both know John Berghoff and have gone through some of his training in, in appreciative inquiry. And so we use a lot of reflective questions, you know, questions like, what could you spend the rest of your life doing? Or what's the secret dream of your heart? And just reflecting on some of these, these questions that don't get asked very often, you know, quite frankly, because they aren't super practical, at least not at, at first glance. But it's really important to, when you do have the time, uh, to reflect on them, to answer them. So we ask a lot of those deep questions, and then we try to triangulate through you know, the personality side, what are your values, and then also the gift side, what are your strengths, and also what you're passionate about, what are your dreams. Try to triangulate, okay, your purpose is somewhere in there, in the middle of that, and, and we try to pull that out of you. Mm, that sounds like a really interesting process, Andrew. Of course, I like the personality models and, and being able to to uh, expose ourselves to those things because they teach us a lot about ourselves. But what I really love is where you talked about the deep introspective questions that you can take people through that help people to really ponder what it is that they most value, what it is that's most important to them, what they really want. And then that somewhere in there is where they're able to discover that purpose. So that, uh, that's pretty cool. Absolutely. Yeah. How about uh, what is uh, the second phase in your process? So phase two is to determine your plan. And determine your plan is really just about, okay, we just came up with this really cool purpose. How are we going to make it a reality? A lot of times, you know, you're going to get one or the other. We want to give you both. And so it's what's your why, but then what's your what? Ultimately, how are we going to 
make this into something really cool. And, you know, the purpose is really almost like an abstract idea, quite frankly, Dan. It's, it's something that is a little pie in the sky. We want it to be. We want it to be something that's inspiring, that kind of shoots you out of bed in the morning. You know, mine is to, to remind people that what they do matters. So I can do that whether I'm on a podcast like this or I'm having a coaching call with a client or if I just happen to, to you know, have a spare moment with my Starbucks barista, I can do that. And it's kind of something that undergirds everything that you're doing. But if you want to make something a more formal plan, we got to make it concrete. And so it's about moving the abstract into the concrete and saying, okay, what's your plan for doing this with where you're at? Dan, running the podcast, running your region, doing what you're up to, how are you going to make this purpose a reality through the vehicles and the roles that you currently have in place? And then helping people kind of construct a plan to do that. A lot of the plans are big too. You know, I, I had somebody come up, walk away saying that their purpose was to preserve Western civilization. <laughs> so then that was their dream. They feel really strongly about that. Well, that's probably a 30 to 40 year journey for this person who's in their you know, early 20s. So what's step one? What's step two? What's step three? How are we going to really make this a reality? That's the question of, of phase two. Something I thought about on developing your plan is the process of goal setting. Mm. And like, how do you weigh short-term goals versus long-term goals? How do you balance those things as you're working with your, your clients? Yeah, a lot of it is breaking things down right by time-based goals. When you ask someone, okay, well, what would that look like? We might have a vision for you know, the long-term. But then it's, okay, where would we need to be five years from now for this to be the case? Where would we need to be three years from now? Where would we need to be one year from now? And where would we need to be next quarter if we're going to be there? And so it's really breaking those things down. Generally speaking, especially with younger folks, it is kind of tough to make a plan beyond three to five years, I've found. So if you're listening to this and, you're, and sometimes it's, it's hard for you to, to goal set beyond that, I think that's completely normal. If you're 20 years old and you're listening to this, five years is 25% of your life. So it's going to be a little tougher for you to think that far out. And so one to three years is great. One year is a really great starting point, quite frankly. But I like to also breaking it down into what I would call priorities. So we might break down a vision into goals. And those goals need to be you know, fitting into priorities. And so the priorities are, okay, what's really important to you? A lot of times it ends up being my business my personal life, and my health, right? And if people have families, then family. But generally, those three to four categories are where people need the most support. And then it's creating goals that fit into each one of those priorities that are relevant in the short term. I don't know, is that helpful? Yeah, that was good. That was good. Yeah. I, like, uh, I like hearing that, those elements of the planning aspect. How about number three? So phase three is to develop your skills. And this one's really important because obviously, if you have a plan, and you can't execute it, then that's no good either. So what we talk about mostly in phase three is all about leadership development. We talk about sales, influence, probably a lot of the things that, that your audience is interested in mastering. And just getting into the science and art of influence and really helping people understand what it is that actually drives someone to take action, that drives someone to transform or drives someone to change. Because if we are here to make a difference in the world, we're going to have to have people on board. We're going to have to have the capacity to get people to see our point of view and to adopt our point of view. And so we need to understand how people think. We need to understand human psychology and frankly, how people make decisions. And that obviously is also really useful in a sales context. It's also really useful in a leadership context. So, you know, just helping people develop those core competencies that are so important to sales and leadership. 
what do you find to be the most universal skills that are necessary for success, regardless of what somebody does? What comes to mind when I ask you about that? Like, what are the most universal skills? One is curiosity and listening. I think if you're trying to influence somebody, you first have to understand who you're trying to influence. And being curious enough to ask the right questions, be curious enough to understand that person's point of view and that person's worldview. And I really think that so much of sales and leadership comes down to understanding our audience, understanding who we're selling to, whether we're selling a knife or a very nice set of knives, or we're selling the idea of of working hard and, and investing in yourself. And that comes down to being curious about who this person is, what matters to them, what's important to them, and currently where they are. Once we show that we understand people, then they're willing to listen. So there's that, that classic quote, right? People don't care how much you know until they know that you care, right? And it's as simple as that. So one thing I would say is curiosity. Mm. Um, I think that curiosity, by the way, comes from a genuine care for others. Mm. I've always said that one of the keys to being a good leader is this acronym I call AGAS, A-G-A-S, which stands for actually give a shit. <laughs> Absolutely. The leaders who actually care about the people who they're working with are the ones who are the most curious, who do want to listen because they want to get to know someone because they truly, genuinely care and they want to help people as best as they can. Totally, totally. I mean, that's great. I love that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to steal that if you don't mind. Uh, actually, give a shit. I, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, it, it's really about just do you care to ask the next question? Do you care? I feel like a lot of questions are begging another question. A lot of answers are begging another question. And there's a lot of subtext and things that are unsaid in people's answers where a lot of people just kind of look over it. And it's just an opportunity to say, hey, hold up, before we go any further, can I ask you another question about that? And the leaders who do that, they show that they give a shit, uh, for lack of a better term. And that definitely is reflected in uh, who wants to follow them. So that's really good stuff. Yeah. I want to circle back to the what are the most universal skills question because we talked a little bit about influence and curiosity, listening. I think certainly influence is one of the most critical skills. You've got to be able to ultimately help people to take action on what it is that they want and what you're trying to you know, have people accomplish if they're working for you. And that's a critical element of success is that influence. And I always feel like a big piece of influence is how you make people feel because you could command someone to do something. You could order someone to do something and, you know, and maybe they, they do it because they're afraid any sort of uh, consequence if they don't follow what you're saying. But that doesn't, that's not long-term influence. Long-term influence is getting someone to want to do something. If you think about parenting, this is a classic example, right? You have a five-year-old and you can tell your kid, to do something and they might do it, but if they don't want to do it, they're, they're not going to continue doing that in the future, right? We, we got to get people to want to do things. And so positive influence, positive framing when we're influencing is really key. How we make people feel when we're talking to them is really key. These are all elements of influence that I found to be important. Absolutely. Can you inspire somebody to actually adopt a compelling vision for their lives? And if you're coaching somebody or you're working with somebody, one of the very first things you should be reading for as you're talking to someone is, does this person have a compelling vision? Because a lot of times you sit across the desk from somebody, you're supposed to meet with them because it's on the calendar, 
and they say, I'm, I want to sell 5,000 this week, but they're not saying it with any vigor or any excitement or whatever. And instead of just assuming that that's the case, take a step back, ask, okay, well, why is that? Even though it sounds exciting, you don't sound excited and be willing to, to get them inspired by that. I love that. Yeah. Let me throw another thing at you just to get your take on it. Because when I think about a universal skill that's necessary for success in anything, one of the things that comes to my mind would be emotional mastery. Like life is a series of ups and downs. And the people whose attitude goes up and down with life's challenges are the people who tend to be on, they're on the proverbial emotional roller coaster. They typically are experiencing wide ranges of like success and how they feel on a day-to-day basis. And I think it important as life moves up and down that our attitude kind of remains a little more steady. And is that something that you dig into with people when you talk about skills? And, and if so, you know, how do you address that with others? Yeah, a really big part of success, I believe in, in life or in, in any endeavor is what I would call energy management, right? You're kind of using emotional management. I think it's very similar. Mm-hmm. And I think that people who are serious about their energetic habits, you don't have to be a green beret to be serious about your health. Uh, You don't have to be a fitness guru or influencer to be serious about your diet and exercise. But you do have to, at the very least, value your energy, value your sleep, value the food that you put in your body and your your exercise routines. Quite frankly, value your inputs in terms of what sort of media are you consuming? And if you're constantly consuming media, what's the cost of that to you and to your business? And can you find time to also decompress you know, certainly meditation is a part of that, that I like to, to do personally. And, and some of my people also like to follow that as well. So meditation, mentally checking where your stories are at, and then also managing your emotions and then also managing your physical energy is certainly really important for success. Yeah. Fantastic. That's great. So we've, we've talked about discover your purpose and determine your plan, develop your skills. Uh, how about the fourth phase of your process? Yeah. And honestly, this one's my favorite, you know, because I think that things are so complex, especially with everything that's going on right now. It's super important that we kind of cultivate our own wisdom and our own capacity to make decisions that are not just based on the, the standard advice. And so deep in your wisdom is phase four. And, you know, it's really about how can I actually find the, the richness of life underneath everything that's taking place. Yes, I need to check the boxes of my income, my security. I need to make sure I have a position that I'm, that I'm comfortable in. I need to have some sort of status. I need to have some, some sort of variety. But I also want to actualize as a human. And what that really comes down to from my perspective is deepening your wisdom and learning how to let something roll off your shoulders. Learning how to respond to somebody who's difficult, even if you might have all the reason in the world to be Uh, justified in your resentment or your anger, how to kind of let go, how to discern when there's a crossroads, which path to take. So often our success in life hinges upon these opportunities where you can go this direction or you can go that direction. And how do you know that this is the right choice for you? And I really like to zoom in and say, let's work in focusing on developing your wisdom, not just listening to good advice. I think there's a big difference between good advice and wisdom. And I think good advice is out there and it's readily available and it's probably right 80% of the time. And that's awesome. But also I do think that you reach a certain point in your development journey where you're really looking for counsel. You're really looking for things that are a little bit beyond just the standard typical 
conventional advice. And so deepening your wisdom is, is phase four, and it's all about studying and learning how to do that. You know, one of the things about advice is that it, when people give you advice, it usually is from a frame of reference of what has worked for them or what they think. And so it does take wisdom and, or discernment, I might say, to be able to figure out how that applies to you. And I, I think that's an important distinction that needs to be made about advice. And one of the, the uh, simplest concepts I've ever heard about that I feel like applies to the idea of deepening your wisdom is somebody once told me, he said, do more of what works and do less of what doesn't. And I think about, you know, as we're going through our experiences in life, we, we begin to learn like what works. We begin to learn, right? If I do this, people listen, it works. If I do this, I succeed, I sell more. If I do that, that doesn't work, right? If I yell and scream at my kids, it might work right now, but it's probably not going to keep working, Right. Um, and we start to kind of learn these things um, over time. And that's where I think, you know, real wisdom comes from is that, 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 that aspect of learning from our experiences versus just where, what a lot of people do is they don't learn from their experiences. They continue to repeat the same mistakes over and over and over and over again, expecting that somehow miraculously something is going to change in their world. And, uh, you know, so being able to have that discernment as to what is working, what is not working for me is key. And obviously we can learn from other people's experiences and other people's advice, but it's important to kind of take other people's advice from that context of realizing that that's what works for them. And I need to, I need to discern what what works for me. Does that, does that sort of make sense to you? Yeah. I like that a lot. I like do more of what works and less of what doesn't, especially when looking at your own life and, and self-analyzing because what works for you, Dan might not work for me and vice versa because of different temperaments, because of different personalities, because of different skill sets because of different life experiences, uh, different circumstances uh, with your family or, or whatnot. And we all have different circumstances. We all have different skill sets and different strengths. Um, you know, if you listen to Richard Branson, he's going to say bet it all. If you listen to Warren Buffett, he's going to say mitigate your risk. If you listen to Oprah, she's going to tell you to become the star of the show and, and to build your personal brand. If you listen to Mark Zuckerberg, he's going to say, let the product shine. You know, you hang out in the background. And so it's like everyone's playing to their strengths. And so we mm -hmm. can't just simply say, let me listen to the experts because the experts actually have conflicting advice. And so what we want is contextualized advice for us, for our life situation, for who we are and where we want to go personally. And my take is that's the essence of wisdom. And if we can find advice that's really contextualized for us, who we are and where we want to go in life, then we've, we've kind of touched upon something that's really precious and really important. And that kind of hits to do more of what works for me and less of what doesn't. Yeah. I, I like the words you use with contextual advice, right? Mm -hmm. And if you're working with somebody who's coaching you, who's getting to know you, right? The more they know about you, the more they're able to help provide contextual advice, the more they, they're able to you know, have discussions with you that are likely to be more relevant to you. And, you know, so that goes, goes all the way back to, you know, determining your purpose, right? If somebody is coaching you or, you know, working with you in a, in a manager and subordinate capacity, the more that they get to know you and the more that they help you discover that, that, you know, your purpose and your reasons, right? The, the better they're able to lead you and guide you along the way. So if you are a manager or you are a leader, right, all this stuff really ties together in helping to manage an organization and, and, and inspire and motivate other people. 
Correct. Yeah. And that's, that's why all the four phases kind of work together, right? Um, if you, if you know someone's purpose, you know, their plan, you know, their skills they need to, to, uh, invest in learning. And then we can kind of provide that contextual advice and hopefully also help them cultivate it in themselves. One other thing I'll just say about what you said there is whether you're the mentee or the mentor, I'm curious, have you ever heard of, uh, Johari's window? Have you ever heard of this framework? Johari's window. No, I haven't, Andrew. Johari's window. So, you know, it's something that's a common psychological concept. You can definitely, it's got its own Wikipedia page and everything. So if you're listening to this, you can check it out. But it's something that I teach all of my clients. And it's something that you can use if you are looking to coach people, even if you're just looking in a, in a formal relationship to coach somebody, say someone reports to you. And so the idea is that there's four, quad, four quadrants, kind of a two by two matrix. And the first quadrant there's kind of what you see and what I see. In other words, what, what do you see as the, as the mentee? And what do I see as the mentor? And that's called the arena. And the arena is where growth takes place, where life change can happen because we agree that this is an issue or this is a problem or this is working or this is not. And so what we want to do is expand that arena as much as possible. Now there's the second quadrant is what I see as the mentor, but what you don't see as the mentee, just because I have different life experience, or I have different educational background, or what have you. And so we call that the blind spot. And so the goal is for us to make the blind spot as small as possible. But what happens when we typically try to point out people's blind spots is they get defensive, right? Uh, I'm sure that you've you've had a, a time in your life where you've maybe spoken with somebody and said, Hey, I think you got a problem here. And uh, they bucked against you, right? And uh, they wanted to, they wanted to fight you on it. So I always want to teach this framework to people and then say, Hey, if I see a blind spot, do I have permission to call it out? Do I, do I have permission to ask you to consider it at the very least? And, you know, when you get someone to buy in to having their blind spot revealed, we actually flip that on its head where instead of being defensive when you're pointing out a blind spot, what they actually do is they get excited. We want to train people and teach people. And if you're being coached, you want to get excited. And rejoice when your blind spot's being revealed because now you can actually grow and more information can enter the arena. So we want our blind spot to be pointed out. So that's kind of moving the second quadrant and minimizing it and making the first quadrant bigger. Um, And then there's another quadrant, the third quadrant, the bottom left-hand corner is called the mask. And this is what you see as the mentee, but what I don't see as the mentor because usually because simply hasn't been shared or we haven't gotten to know each other yet on that level, or for some reason, it just hasn't come up yet in conversation. We're just getting to know each other. Or maybe you actually don't feel comfortable sharing it. Maybe you feel like you'll be judged for sharing it, or you'll feel that I will try to convince you to do something else, or you don't trust me enough to share it. And so that's called the mask. And you know, you mentioned something earlier about vulnerability. The way that we lower the mask and the facade of pretending to be one thing but then letting somebody in is by sharing vulnerably. And so if you're a mentee and someone's mentoring you, you want to lower your mask as much as possible and have as real and authentic and honest as a conversation as possible with your manager or with your coach or whomever's leading you. And so that's kind of inviting that in again. And we want to teach that to anybody that we're leading. And the fourth quadrant is just unknown potential. And really that's just revealed over time. That's what you don't see and I don't see. But ultimately, that just gets revealed over time. So I'll just share that framework with you. I could see some light bulbs going off in your head as, uh, as we were sharing. So I'm, <laughs> curious, I'm curious what you thought of that. 
Oh, man. So we could do a whole podcast episode on Johari's window, and maybe we can circle <laughs> back to that at some point in the months ahead. Andrew, right. that is so good. One of the light bulbs that went off in my head as you were talking was on the topic of blind spot and defensiveness. And I think that one of the greatest awakenings I have had over the years is the idea that feedback is a gift and that we need to learn how to receive feedback well. Because when I was a young manager, I sort of thought, well, I'm really good and I know everything and you know, I've got this. And if somebody came to me with a suggestion, I would be like, well, who are you? And you know, what have you done? And right. It's like, that was, I was the, the same way. I was the same way, Dan. You can even ask Mike Muriel. He'll back up that story. That was <laughs> very defensive as a young vector manager, for sure. I think it's the natural way of being for almost everyone. It's mm-hmm. sort of you have to buck against that, and you just have to consciously decide that you recognize you have this quote blind spot, and that when somebody comes along who's willing to help you with it, you're grateful. Right. It's like if you were walking on the street and you had some, you know, a string on your coat or something in your hair or a booger in your nose or something like you would appreciate somebody telling you, hey, you know what? Like, you know, wipe your nose real fast. Right. Like, oh, thanks. You know, I appreciate it. I'm glad somebody told me that. But yet when somebody tells you about some other area of your persona or the way you operate that they feel like they want to critique or help you improve, most people don't respond very well. And I think it's just so important to like just Decide that you're you're not going to get into that trap. That if somebody gives you any sort of feedback, even if you don't agree with it, that you just say, "Hey, thank you for being willing to tell me that. I appreciate hearing that." And you ponder it, you think about it. Maybe you throw it out because you disagree, but you always keep those doors open for feedback, for conversation, for interaction. It's such a critical element of success in any relationship, whether it be business or personal. And I've been on like a mini mission, Andrew, over the last probably 10 years to try to get young people to realize that this is one of the most important things they can do. I get to guest lecture in several of the Bay Area colleges on a regular basis. And like this is one of the core points in my message is how we receive feedback and making a paradigm shift about that. I think it's one of the most critical things that we can do. I love that. And yeah, sometimes we do ask, hey, who are you to come to me with this feedback? But I still believe that there's signal in every noise. And even if it's slightly biased, where this person is coming from, because they have their own point of view that's maybe not completely clear, at the same time, there's still something there for you. And they're still pointing out something that you need to sit with. Even if it doesn't come to fruition right away, maybe you'll hear from a few other places and start to add up, oh, that's what that person was mentioning back in the day where I got upset. So Mm -hmm. yeah, the more we can just be open to the revealing of the booger on our face and get excited about that instead of embarrassed, the better. Yeah, absolutely. That was awesome. That was awesome. Where can people go if they want to follow you or learn more about uh, you and what you do? Yeah, you can just check us out. The website is called www.betterthanrich.com. And just feel free to poke around. If you'd like to get a free call, I am offering a free call to anybody who, who wants to connect. And it's not a sales call or anything like that, but just a free coaching call. So check it out. There's a free call section to sign up and you can get to know us a little bit more. We can get to know you. That's awesome, Andrew. Well, hey, this has been an extremely high value conversation, both for me and for our audience. I'm sure that people will have gotten a ton out of this after listening. And I really, really appreciate your your taking your valuable time to share here on the podcast. So thanks, Andrew. My pleasure. Thanks, Dan. 
Wow, everyone. That was Andrew Biggs. What an awesome conversation that was. I trust that you totally enjoyed that as much as I did. Cool to hear his perspective on the current challenges and how can we turn this into a net positive for us, even if it's not a net positive in a financial sense, right? What are the benefits that we can derive from taking on this current challenge? And that philosophy, that way of thinking applies to every challenge that comes our way in terms of looking for the seed of good in there and being able to harvest that in the long run. Loved hearing about Andrew's experience with Cutco and the idea of testing the limits. And I just want to encourage you, if you are a Cutco rep or a Cutco manager right now, just think about that's a big part of the reason why you took this job in the first place was to find out what's possible for you, to test your limits, to stretch your comfort zone. And so it's important to be doing things that are challenging, that are difficult, that do sometimes make you feel uncomfortable. That's how you find that proximal zone of development that Andrew talked about, which is the sweet spot in setting goals. I also, of course, really liked where Andrew talked about doing the work to be prepared. Doing the work. Are you studying? Are you working on your game? Are you asking questions? Are you surrounding yourself with people who are achieving and interacting with them in ways that help accelerate your learning and accelerate your development. It's so important not to just rely on your own personality, your own past results to take you to where you want to be because the person who you are today has brought you to where you are now, but it's not the person that you need to be in order to get to where you want to be in the future. Ongoing personal growth is a critical element of that success. Of course, Andrew talked about his four-phase process, discover your purpose, determine your plan, develop your skills, and deepen your wisdom. You can learn more about that by visiting betterthanrich.com. I loved the insight about Johari's window. I can't wait to study that today. I'm going to dig into that concept. I'm going to Google that and learn about that today. Andrew did say in wrapping this up that one of his key lessons was to remind people that what they do matters. And that's a great concept to leave you on, that what you do does matter that you have the opportunity to be someone who can change people's lives through your example and through your influence. Let's all commit to doing that as we go about our lives. Let's all consider how we can impact other people in the most positive way possible. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode of Changing Lives, Selling Knives, please consider rating or reviewing us on your podcast player and hit the subscribe button so future episodes are automatically downloaded directly to your device. For access to guest bios, show notes, and other resources, visit changinglivespodcast.com. You can sign up there to receive valuable resources for free from people featured on the podcast. This is Dan Cassetta signing off. We'll be back in a few days for our next story about changing lives. 